Well, hey, good morning, Hub City. Morning. So I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon from a mustached man. It's a little more intense. There's some more lip twitching. Um, I'll, I'll try to be civil. Don't worry. You won't get any lip from me. Okay. Um, let's talk about Mark a little bit. All right. Uh, so Gospel of Mark. Um, has anyone tapped into the Mark study guide? Yes, everybody. I know you're just, you just want to raise your hand up. If you have not, it seems like all of you have, please go into the Mark Study Guide. So online, New Hope, uh, or sorry, New Hope, uh, albanyhubcity.com um, or .org. It's one of those two. You can go in there, and there's a Mark Study Guide. And what it has is a bunch of free resources that are awesome. There's Bible Project videos, if you've ever seen those. Super helpful walkthroughs of the stories and the themes and that kind of stuff. Got a study guide, a reading guide that goes along with it. Um, and Randall and I were kind of talking the other day, you know, when we were in our John series, uh, you know, when you sat down with John, you just kind of felt like you were with an old friend. You know, like, oh, okay, yeah, like you get in the context of it, you just hear his heart, you hear what he cares about and how he reveals Jesus to you. Mark, I don't know if you're quite there yet with Mark. I'm not quite there with Mark. It takes a couple times in, uh, but already it just starts to feel that. And Mark actually used to be my favorite gospel to walk through. It's super action-packed. It's very like, and then this, and then this, very narrative. Um, it's shorter. <laughs> Maybe that's why it was my favorite. Um, so it was really, it was a good one. But then after diving through John, John kind of took that mantle of my favorite one. I have, an, I have a suspicion that as the scriptures reveal Jesus to us, whatever book we're going through is going to be our favorite book because it is revealing the person and character of Jesus. Um, so a few things that recap so far, if you haven't uh, been with us in Mark, or if you have, sometimes you forget, um, as we already talked about, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Um, but he packs a punch right off the bat, comes with the heralding of John the Baptist. So go last week, you can podcast last week, or go to our YouTube page and watch Randall walk us through John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist, he's foretelling the coming of Christ. His big kind of preaching is about proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the people of God have been waiting for this herald type of person to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. In fact, they knew they were told to look like someone who would look like the prophet Elijah. And Elijah wore a garment of hair. He wore a leather belt, kind of the whole getup. Plus, between our last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, okay, and when Jesus shows up on the scene has been about 400-ish years of this kind of silent years from God. Okay, so that, 400, guys, we just got off of a series. That should ring some bells. That should set up some alarms. What was the last 400 years-ish of silence book that we just went through? Exodus. I heard that like, uh, Exodus? Yeah, Exodus, right? 400 years in slavery, and then what happened? God radically delivered his people, right? And he sent this prophet ahead in Moses to tell about God's deliverance. So here, uh, we, 400 years should just spark like, okay, whoa, like it's been about that much time. Uh, God's about to do something big. Now this John the B guy is here. He looks like Elijah. Um, and he's here, and now it was described, Mark 1, 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So it's like, this is the guy. This is Elijah. It's basically like he went into the dress-up closet at the, at the church and was like the, the shelf labeled Elijah. I want that one. And he took it on. Um, but as Randall walked us through last week, John was a huge piece of this prophecy being fulfilled. Okay, huge piece, but even he admits 
After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So now, Jesus is on the scene, and he immediately brings his heavenly presence of healing with him. Like, have you ever stopped to just think about and wonder why it's evil spirits and the demonic power that are some of his first healings? Like, think about it. For you and I today, if there's an incredible healing of an ailment, that's amazing, right? If there's a physical deformity that's, that's healed, that's, that's life-changing. But for us, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I feel like you have to build up a little bit to be able to cast out demons. Like, you have to be doing spiritual P90X for, like, a while before you can get to that point, right? Jesus shows up, no warm-ups, no, like, let's get a few broken bones under our belt. Like, it's just right to unclean spirits, and demons. But it's interesting. Look at this, how he rebukes them. We looked at this last week. Jesus rebukes the evil spirit out of the man, saying, be silent and come out of him. Okay, be silent. Don't talk about me, right? The gospel writers are essentially heralds writing down the coming of Christ. And if this truly was the Christ, the Savior of the world, both physically and spiritual, then even the evil spirits can't help but declare who he is. Like, if an evil spirit is, is declaring who Christ is, that's a sign this is probably the Christ, right? Um, more than any human confession, that would be uh, pretty incredible. But this time, his time is not yet for him to be confessed as the Christ. He doesn't even want the evil spirits to declare him. So Jesus leaves the synagogue, and he goes to Simon and Andrew's house, okay? Simon's mother-in-law is ill. And he shows his power over this illness, right? He's been healing a little bit, but he shows up, he shows his power over this illness and healing her. This would, of course, these, these fishermen just left everything to be with Jesus. Okay, everything. And so far, he's healed an unclean spirit. He's taught a little bit, but this is super personal, right? This was their mother-in-law. And here, here he was, and Jesus just healed her. This would have bolstered the disciples' confidence in pursuing with Jesus. In fact, everyone around them starts bringing many people to him. And in chapter 134, it says, he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Okay, so let's continue with the story. If you don't have a Bible open, turn to Mark chapter 1. In the morning, Jesus rises and he goes out to pray. Write that down. If you don't have a pen, write that down. Like, just that's it. Our Jesus was arguably, very arguably, like the closest human to God right? He, he was the closest human to God, and even he took time to be alone with God. That's huge, right there. We could walk away right there. Just go take time with God, right? But of course, if you haven't tried this yourself, if you try to shut off your phone, go away into like a desolate place to connect with God, a little spiritual retreat, and you don't tell anybody about it that you're going to do it, people don't understand it, okay? It's like, no, you are needed. Where were you? Like, you are too important to take time for yourself, Okay, verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. So we're going to start seeing this motif through Mark, where people not necessarily wanting to see Jesus, but wanting what he can give them, wanting what they can get from Jesus without necessarily having to follow him. So Jesus continues his travels, teaching and healing throughout Galilee, and he comes across a leper. So I'm sure you've heard of leprosy before, but just to recap, it's a disease that essentially destroys your body from the inside out. 
Today, it is very rare and almost always treatable, but in Bible times, it was very serious and often a death sentence. So naturally, the Israelites had rules and regulations about what to do if someone ends up having leprosy. Let me read this for you. Leviticus chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of a leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. So the priest examines the body, and if the leprous uh, spot looks like it's more than just surface level on the skin, the person is immediately pronounced unclean and essentially excommunicated from their community. However, if it looks just like a spot, then they have to be quarantined, sorry, trigger word, okay, uh, and have to go through the process to see if it will spread or not to be declared clean or unclean. So the priesthood was never meant to heal leprosy, but to keep watch and declare if it is in fact a disease or not for the sake of the community. So if someone obviously has a leprosy disease, this is what they are told, Leviticus 13.45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip, okay, and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Complete excommunication, right? Now Jesus comes on the scene, and Mark identifies that there is this man who is labeled a leper, okay? If this was obvious that this was a leper, this man would be in torn clothes, his hair would be loose, covered face, and he was supposed to cry out, what? Unclean, unclean, right? To let Jesus and his followers know they should not come near. What does he do? Mark 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Like often where at one level you can look at someone and say, look at the nerve of this guy. He's not doing what's right. On the other side, you could say, look at the faith of this guy. Look at this guy that he knows what he's doing. And he says, only you can make me clean. The leper probably has nothing to lose. And of course, nothing could humiliate him further. So instead of doing what was socially acceptable and staying away, he fell at the feet of Jesus saying, your will be done, only you can make me clean. So this leper, he doesn't recognize Jesus as a prophet, certainly not as a priest who assumably had already cast him out as unclean. He recognizes Jesus as the one who can make him clean. And this next bit is remarkable, verse 41. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Have you ever watched someone do something that you know they shouldn't do, but it's like slow motion, right? Like the necessity to stop them and your body reacting to how best to tackle Jesus like doesn't quite match up. Like as a human living in these times, you have to understand, touching a person with a skin disease, especially leprosy, you would get that disease. Like, it's highly contagious. Like, if I had an example of what would be really highly contagious today in our day and age, like, let's just say, for example, somebody sneezes in your face right now, then, like, probably, yeah, like, you have it. Like, you have cooties. 
Like, that's what, that's what the masks are for. It's for a cooties pandemic of everyone's grade school, right? Now listen to this. Jesus, to reach out and touch this man, is Jesus giving up his life. Do you realize that? Jesus, to reach out and touch his, his clean hand to touch this leprosy man, he would, and everybody would agree with this, he would have gotten leprosy and died horribly and prematurely. But here was Rabbi Jesus doing what every other rabbi would tell you not to do, touch something unclean, let alone leprosy. Jesus is the only one who gives up his life to give life to others. Verse 42 Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. No one declared it, right? No priest was there at the time, but he was clean. Now going back to what we know needs to happen for someone to be declared clean and to get back into community, Jesus follows instead, verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. People knew this person, right? People knew this person was supposed to be yelling, unclean, unclean, but instead, if he goes around shouting, I'm clean, I'm clean, like people might not believe, right? In fact, it might get worse for him, but also think about the priests now, okay? This it doesn't say that he went back to the same priest that told him he was unclean. If I were this person, I maybe would have to just be like, boom, baby, like, check it out, new skin, who dis, you know? But this healing, it would have been evidence to any priest that God was at work doing a new thing. This was unheard of for someone to be declared, you have leprosy, you are unclean, get out to come back clean. That's unheard of. Right? The, plea, the, the priest would be faced with two choices. First, this is some weird fake out, and they're being tricked, and they need to stick with their original story. Or, this is a miraculous new move of God that they need to start spreading the news about right now. Unfortunately, right now, in this story, we aren't told how the priests respond to this, but look what the former leper does. He can't contain himself. Verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it, to spread the news that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Uh, he didn't, this guy, he didn't have to go to Bible school. He didn't have to go to Evangelism 101 online to learn how to spread the news of Jesus Christ. Listen, the base foundation for mission is found in someone who was once dead and is now alive. That's it. Someone who was once dead and is now alive. That contagious spirit, ironically, of what he just had, the sickness he just had, that is what is going to change people. People listen to him. Now everybody's coming to him. They didn't just take this guy's like, ah, you're fine. They obviously knew him as the leper, and now they wanted to know who this Jesus was. So the even more thing about, the even more beautiful thing about leprosy is that uh, it has long theologically been understood as an analogy for sin, right? The sin that eats you from the inside out, and Jesus just healed leprosy. There's the potential, the possibility that maybe theologically Jesus also could heal sin. I don't want to spoil anything, but we'll get to it in a little bit. And I love how Jesus didn't just go and shut himself up in the temple or capitalize on all these people coming to him for fame, but he stayed in the desolate places with the outcasts and the sick and the marginalized. 
And maybe it's just me, but when I read in the Gospels of a large crowd following Jesus, my guess is it's all of these people. It's all of these people that he was out with. They have nowhere to go back to. Go back to. They have no life to go back to. They only have moving forward with Jesus. So now flip to chapter 2, and we'll get into this incredible story. We'll finish this story. A few days later, Jesus went back to Capernaum, and in verse 1, it was reported that he was at home. So some scholars believe this was actually Jesus' home. He moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. Um, it doesn't really matter who the homeowner was, um, but nevertheless, apparently, he was considered home. Okay, this is where he was. Verse 2, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And this next line is rather ominous. I love it. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. They. Like, who's they? <laughs> right? Is it like the village ruffian? Or like, does Jesus get like, like Frodo-like eyes with the ring race? And it's like, they're here. They've come, you know? Like, is it that? Like, we aren't really told who they are. But my guess is by the end of the story, we will all know who they are. They've become quite famous. For Mark to write this to the early church, the friends of the paralytic story would have been very known. These friends show up to see Jesus, and they are carrying a paralytic on a mat. Ambitious, but not too crazy, right? People were bringing their sick from all over to see Jesus. Verse 4, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So let's talk about this in a second. The roof falling down at Hub City is a regular Tuesday, okay? But the roof falling down when Jesus is teaching and the house, like that's not as normal, right? So typically roofs back then were accessible by an outside staircase, okay? So outside the house, you go up this outside staircase and there's not one house was like cookie cutter, right? But in general, there was some sort of like cross beams or material that went across the roof. And then there was something laid, heavy laid on it, like stone or tile or brick or something. And then thatch was put on top, okay? So technically, everything was removable at some level. Um, but to be able to remove all of that stuff while trying to not distract the people listening is pretty much impossible. So it would have caused a lot of distraction, a lot of destruction to the roof. Okay, what the NIV said, they dug into the roof. You usually don't fix what you've dug into, you know? So now this is cool because the friends weren't satisfied with just hearing Jesus or seeing Jesus. Like they thought that their friend, the paralytic, needed to be right next to Jesus. However, this plan that they have of fastening some way for them to lower this paralytic down into the roof, this was not, like, part of the plan was not to, like, you know, just, just have the man kind of, like, right, floating right above Jesus, and if Jesus doesn't heal the man, they'll just hoist him back up. Like, this was like, we're going to let you down, and you need to walk out. <laughs> like, like this, there's no way to really get you back up, so either we'll get you in a couple hours as you're still lying there if Jesus does not heal you, but we think that Jesus will heal you. The plan was for the man to walk out of there. Look at what Jesus does here, verse, chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw whose faith? Their faith. Their faith. Okay, now we get back to like when someone says, and they came. It's like, these were the guys. Their faith. Their faith says, we've got nowhere else to go. 
but forward with Jesus. Does that sound familiar? So the friends are pumped. He's going to heal them. Jesus saw their faith, and Jesus says to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Incredible, right? However, if you are paralyzed, and you've gone through all this work, and the one person who potentially, maybe possibly, has a chance of miraculously healing you, and he forgives your sins, as much as we all want to be spiritually cool with that, that's kind of a bummer, right? That's kind of a bummer moment, like, that's great, but like, do you see what's happening here, you know? For the friends, kind of a bummer, maybe for them, to be like, oh, okay, how, now what? Now what's the plan? I wasn't, didn't expect that. Still awesome, not necessarily what they came for. But from Jesus' perspective, this is a huge moment. There was a well-known rabbinical teaching pointing all the way back to Moses' days of blessings and cursings, blessings for following God, curses for disobeying God, that was connected to, to sickness and disease, depending on what level of blessing or curse you were under. So the rabbinical teaching was this. There is no sick man healed of his sickness until all of his sins have been forgiven him. Hey, that was just like widely known. Jesus drops this bomb first. Your sins are forgiven. Now put yourself in the position of some of the scribes there. Well, how do we know it worked? How can you tell if someone's sins are forgiven? How can you say something like that? In fact, verse 6, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning, not out loud, but in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here's the thing. Their thinking is not wrong. It's true. Only God can forgive sins. You know what else only God can do? Know what's in the heart of man. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Like Jesus just did two only God can do things. He's forgiving sins. He's knowing what's in their hearts. In fact, in fact, he goes on and asks them rhetorically, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And of course, the answer is, sure. Uh, either, I don't know. But according to their own rabbinical teaching, there is only one way to prove that this man's sins were actually forgiven, if he is also physically healed. Verse 10, Jesus says, But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The implications of this are astounding. If this man were physically healed, then he must have been spiritually healed, which means Jesus can do what only God can do, which means Jesus is God, right? Crazy. Guys, this is chapter two of Mark, and we're already here. Like, Mark is not messing around. This is incredible. So in the Old Testament, God is the only one who can forgive sins. The Messiah was believed to come from God, to root out the godless of Israel, to crush demonic powers, and to protect the people from the reign of sin. That's like the Messiah 101. What wasn't part of his job description was to forgive sins. Only God 
can do that, right? But Jesus reveals a more complete picture of who he is. He is, in fact, not just a herald, not just this great prophet. He is God in the flesh. Now, the tension of this story is that Jesus knew this paralytic's greatest want. He knew his greatest desire, assuming it is to be healed, to be not a paralytic anymore. But God, Jesus, started with his greatest need. The cruel reality for us to wrestle with is this wouldn't be a positive story if Jesus said, your sins are forgiven and then never healed the man, right? That would be uncomfortable for us. But Jesus didn't come to make life more bearable. Jesus didn't come to make life more comfortable. Jesus came to defeat sin and death. It's sin and death that has corrupted our world and our bodies. Rather, it's sin and death that has, that has corrupted his world and his created people. So why would he not go after the true enemy? This is why I want to take a second and talk about Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing in Romans. This is his huge letter to Romans. And Mark, there's a lot of similarities because Mark is writing to the Roman church, the Christians in Rome. And, and Paul writes in, in Romans chapter 5, talking about this, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Skip to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And then to end it, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel writers are revealing to us. He's reversing the curse that started in the beginning of our Bibles, and Mark is here to tell the tale. The question for us today is that maybe some of us today, we aren't satisfied with just the forgiveness of sins. No, you need to do more, Jesus. You need to heal this. You need to fix this or fix me right now. My life hasn't changed enough. I've been there. Or maybe some of us today are okay being right outside the house just enough to hear Jesus and to walk away encouraged but unchanged. See, there's no commitment when you're just hearing something encouraging that makes you feel good. Maybe some of us are here today and we have accepted our sinful state. Maybe it's, it's an easier to just be an outcast, to cry out, unclean, unclean. Yeah, that's right, I, I've, I've made my bed and I'm okay lying in it. Here's one thing that's true. Both the leper and the paralytic both pursued Jesus. The leper broke social boundaries, fell to his knees, and had to ask Jesus if he would be willing to heal such a broken, lonely man. The paralytic couldn't come to Jesus by himself. He had to have help. He had to be brought by others to Jesus. That one is hard. They're both tough. That one is hard. Who doesn't want to be strong enough in themselves to do what they need to do to get healed, right? To be physically and spiritually self-sufficient. One man desperately wants community. One man desperately wants to be self-sufficient. And both of them had every reason to blame what had happened to them as their greatest enemy to their joy and freedom. Here's what they believed. Their ailment became their unrighteousness. 
Okay, think about that. What had happened to them, what was keeping them from right relationship with God had become their unrighteousness. And if you think, uh, we, all have, we all have some form of this, some form of ailment. Some are obvious, way more obvious than others. Some are more debilitating than others. And if you think, no, I don't have an ailment, just think, is there something that makes you think, or have you ever thought, if I only I didn't struggle with this? If only I didn't have this. If only I could grow a mustache. I mean, if there's something that you feel like would bring you closer to God, that right there, that's the barrier. That's the thing that becomes the unrighteousness. And, and I know for myself, I, I don't always put sin there. I don't always put sin there. It's something else. It's something like, God, you need to fix this. If only this, then I wouldn't struggle with this, or I wouldn't, whatever. You fill in the blank, right? But Jesus paints a different picture. Sin is the enemy. Sin is the unrighteousness in us all. It is only because of sin that we are not in right relationship with our Creator. Now listen to this carefully. It actually would have been wrong for Jesus to just heal the paralytic physically. Listen, because that would have allowed for the man to believe that his greatest need was fulfilled. Because that's what he thought. This was his greatest unrighteousness. That man would have skipped away. He would have shared the healing power of Jesus, sure, but still as an unforgiven sinner at his core. The most cruel thing God could do would be to give his people what they want on the outside, to give people over to their passions and never heal the real brokenness inside. And if that is how we think God operates, that he's just going to fix everything, then no wonder we're mad at him. <laughs> like, yeah, God, you fixed this thing, but, but now what about this? Like, this doesn't satisfy me anymore, or this ailment or this issue has come back into my life. You need to fix it again and again, and we end up living like strung-out junkies for God to fix everything and to make it newer and bigger and shinier, a bigger spiritual high. Like, I don't feel you anymore, God. I don't feel this spiritual high anymore, so you must be the problem. Where are you? Okay, have you been there before? I've been there. Might be there again sometime. Like, we're in trouble when we believe that getting our deepest wish will save us. But praise be to God, that is not how Jesus revealed his power to us. The true reality is that Jesus has the power and ability to heal your every ailment. He has the power and ability to make you successful, to bring you endless amounts of joy, but Jesus is most concerned with the state of your heart. Right? Our status in this life is nothing compared to our status in eternity, and he is ready and able to do the deepest, the hardest, but the greatest work in forgiving us our sins but there's an aspect of pursuing him in that. Like, we have to dig into that roof. We have to remove the obstacle that keeps us, not just from hearing him, but being in his presence to want it like hidden treasure, the, the Proverbs say. If you will, right now, will you please close your eyes? Will you put yourself in the leper's position, okay? You know something's not right. Life is hard. Life is super hard. You know something is not right. Something is deeply wrong. You can't fix it yourself, right? First, we need to acknowledge there is a need for a Savior. Let's let the leper's cry be our prayer today, and let's hear the truth from Jesus himself. Seeing Jesus, you cry out, if you will, you alone, you can make me clean. And the answer is always this. 
Jesus smiles back, I will be clean. Let me pray and let's respond.